Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Tansom here. Thanks for tuning back in to another episode of Life After Business. Today's guest, John Schindel, is an attorney and partner at Siler Schindel. In today's interview, John and I have a fluid conversation about family dynamics and succession planning because I think you could have endless amounts of podcast episodes or interviews or conversations about this topic because every family is different, every situation has different outcomes, and we just want to start having the dialogue around what are the things that families should be thinking about as they're looking to transition. And John's got a lot of really good nuggets for both sides of the conversation, whether you're the parents and you're looking to transition it to your kids, whether it's one in the business or two in the business or a couple outside of it. And if you're the kid or the child and your parents are the owners, what are some of the things that you should be bringing up? What are the conversations that you should be having? So a little bit different of a format today, and we kind of jump around between the various topics within the family succession planning. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview with John. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Ryan? Not too bad. Thanks for coming on to the Life After Business podcast. Yeah, happy to do it. So, you know, you've got a great background, and I think it's very interesting background, actually, for an attorney. So why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of a rundown of how you became into the profession that you're in today. Yeah, well, I um, after college, I spent a couple of years overseas and then ended up um, in a sales job. I worked in technology sales for six years, did some international sales, and then when I was about 30, just kind of got the bug to go to law school. Like, I had sort of planned earlier in life. Um, you know, you make plans and they get changed, and so this was an opportunity to, to go back to law school and I, I thought it was, it, you know, in retrospect, it was a great decision because I kind of knew a little bit about life and a little bit about business before I went. Um, so coming out of law school, I knew that I wanted to be a, a business attorney. And that's what, I, that's what I made myself into. And you own your own firm with a partner. And how long have you guys been together? Yeah, I started. So I've been practicing since 2003. And Scott and I connected up. I worked for him starting in 2008. We have been partners in the Siler Schindel firm since the beginning of 2011. So coming up on the end of five years. I love it. And so for our listeners today, you know, one of the uh, great things about John is the business experience and he kind of alluded to it in uh, his intro. And when you're dealing with family issues and mergers and acquisitions and a lot of the transactions and along with the estate plan, and they all kind of intertwine with each other. And so John and I have got a couple cool topics today, and one of them being giving up control. Because, John, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges when you're sitting down with a family? What are some of the biggest challenges that you see in that flush out in one of the first or second meetings? You know, the first meeting is always an interesting one, Ryan. People come in and they really have no – these are business owners. They come in and they, they really don't have a concept of what – transition looks like or what succession planning looks like. Um, there are a lot of options. And I think early in my career, I used to try to put too much into the first meeting and, you know, try to sound smart and throw out a bunch of options. But over time, I've kind of figured out that's more of a listening meeting for me. 
Um, and then just some talking people through just general ideas about succession planning, just to kind of give them the landscape. Uh, because it's such a big decision for them and something that I'm having to teach people about, I've learned to just go slower and let people digest things between meetings um, instead of just racing to, well, here's five different solutions and let's talk about which one of them works best for you. That's like kind of making clients drink through a fire hose, which I have found does not work very well. Well, especially when they're not necessarily even ready to drink when you're walking in to your appointment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when they come in, I have no idea what the family situation is or whether we're talking about a you know an ESOP purchased by employees. So it really is kind of a discovery meeting for me. And then we, we have some sort of really broad conversations about what succession planning looks like and what that actually means, what succession planning means. Uh, and then we, then we regroup in a second meeting and start digging down into details a little more. Yeah. And so from the conversations you and I have had, you know, some of the top two biggest issues that I see and that you've seen through your client experiences is one is making sure that the owners have got financial security in the transition. But then the second one, which is giving up control and the time, the time allotted to that, how long that takes and what does it actually mean, especially when you're dealing with families with multiple kids in it. And a lot of the times there's business active kids and also non-business active kids. So when you're discussing giving up control, what are, what are some of the conversations that you're having with the parents about understanding the transition and what that, that, you know, quote unquote control looks like? Well, you know, the early part of the conversation is finding out the timing from, let's use the parents, like you said, from the parents. Are we talking about, is there something imminent where there's a health issue and we need to do this fast? Are we looking at setting this up over a five-year period? You know, they're very different discussions. Um, but then it's it's me getting a feel for where the next generation is at. And, you know, I use the analogy of the family cabin. Well, when mom and dad own the family cabin, everyone grows up going there and everyone brings ketchup and takes things home or leaves clothes. But there's mom and dad are kind of the common ground there, right? They kind of set the rules. They kind of guide everything along. And then when the trouble hits is when mom and dad are gone and not everybody really is equal in their use of the cabin or how they use the cabin. The same is true in business and it's trying to figure out where the kids have involvement and what it's going to look like when mom and dad are no longer in the picture in a day-to-day functioning role, uh, you know, where they, they kind of transition to maybe a board role um, or maybe just they're retired and they're just, they just are at Christmas and Easter after that. Um, so it's really finding out what the different, if, if no matter, you know, regardless of how many kids, what each kid's interest level is and a frank conversation with the parents about what their capabilities or what the parents see as the roles going forward. So when you're, I, I like the cabin analogy, first of all, because I think there's plenty of people that have <laughs> those stories and can relate to that. You know, when, when the parents are, coming to you what i've seen is they generally have a pretty pretty solid idea of who they want to transition to and there's usually a lack of communication between the various children and the parents so how do you how do you pierce that whether it's tension or just lack of communication to start guiding down the the conversation of who might be the right person and and the time duration that it's going to take in order to actually do that transition 
Yeah, and that, that goes with that conversation I was just talking about with about the kids is hearing where the capabilities are, hearing how old everybody is, you know, how integrated are they into the company. Um, and that has to be a, a pretty open conversation, and they usually are. And again, this is why I don't necessarily attack this at the first meeting um, because these are uh, – it's difficult for parents to talk about their kids in this way. Well, this person is capable and really seems interested. This person just kind of comes in, has always gotten a paycheck, and hasn't really – done much beyond it looking at it like a job so it's it's sometimes hard for uh, the parents to be talking about their kids this way um, but it's very very important that we cover it and we cover it honestly um, so that we can talk about how you know how does it look for the person how do we build a plan around a person that can potentially run the company how do we build a plan around a person that may be um, just a, a part-time bookkeeper and how do we plan for the two kids that don't live in Minnesota anymore and are and are not really interested in the company, but are kind of interested in the financial side of it? Um, so they're, they're, this is a very key conversation is getting the lay of the land from the parents. And so generally you're having that conversation with the parents prior to bringing the kids in or what's the kind of the sequence of events there? Definitely, definitely. The, the parents really need to set the stage for this. I, I need to, to have that conversation with them. And then we kind of come to common ground after we kind of hear about each of the kids' interest in the company, their aptitude for the company. Um, then we start building plans with the parents. You know, again, sort of broad strokes, but build a plan around each of them. And then you can start developing the, the actual strategic plan and bringing kids into that conversation. So some of the experiences that I've had were you've got that situation where you've got a couple kids in, a couple kids out, and a lot of varying degrees of involvement and skill sets. So, you know, and, you know, one of the top reasons that people have a family business is because it allows a lifestyle for the family to have the cabins and the boats and the various flexibility in their schedule. How do you then address this lifestyle that has been accustomed to this, you know, the family cabin or the family business. And then what I've seen is you've got a lot of heavy payroll because, you know, there might be above market rates for certain positions. Like you said, that controller, you might, you know, combination of salary and distributions. And how do you start to, as that broad brush stroke goes a little bit more granular in identifying the roles and the salaries along with the different involvements? Is there a specific, you know, metrics that you go by or what, what are some of the different examples or stories you've got behind that? Well, I think what you look at is, you know, and let the, getting a little more granular with how it looks like with, with the kids, you know, the example of their, yeah, four kids, one of them's very involved in acting as the vice president of the company and making the strategic decisions. One of them's a part-time bookkeeper and two of them are, have no interest in the company. So it's figuring out, um, what is a fair salary? And I'd like to have the conversation. I like to talk about breaking salaries out for people that are working at the company it, it, as a distinct conversation from who's making money off of the profits of the company. Um, what you want to, one thing you want to avoid is having the, the one kid who's running the company making 200 grand, but then his brothers and sisters, his siblings, also get to make 120 grand and they do nothing. And that leads inevitably to feelings of, of things being unfair 
because the, the person running the company is not making more money uh, based on their efforts. So then how do you distinguish between efforts and the sharing of the family estate? And I think before you answer that, I, you know, one of the convoluted messes or topics that come together is the difference between like the family estate and the business because the business is generally a large portion of that family estate. So if you were to liquidate it, you'd be able to split it up between, you know, all four kids and everybody would be nice and happy. But usually, like you said, you've got the one individual who wants the, has the appetite for risk and is willing to take that family business, which is the largest asset to the next level. So you've kind of got the family estate plus the business all intertwined. And then you're, you know, you're dividing it up between salaries and profits. So kind of explain how you unweave or untangle that and then start getting a little bit more granular with each position. Yeah. The conversation, this is, as we get into these conversations with the parents and we start deciding of, you know, of the four kids, who's going to do what, that's when the conversations with the, with each of the kids start in earnest. You know, I can be part of those but I don't come in with the credibility necessarily as an outside advisor. This is a conversation the parents need to be comfortable having with the kids. Um, what we do is we do a lot of a lot of the legwork through you know stockholder agreements, where mom and dad maybe didn't have one because they're the only owners and they didn't really worry about a stockholder agreement. Now, one thing we we talk about doing is creating separate classes of, of ownership. The Financial rights stay the same, but we give control and power to those that are involved in the day-to-day operation of the company. Something that can really hurt a company is to have all, all the siblings with equal voices, uh, despite some of them not participating in the company. That really undermines sort of the leaders, uh, the, next, the next leader of the company. It undermines his or her ability to run the company when he or she has to answer to an uninformed board or make equal decisions with an uninformed board that has different priorities. So the different stockholder, like this different classes of stock, are you referring to voting versus non-voting or different levels of input on the overall strategic direction of the business? Yeah, you create different shares. You, you, let's just say A, B, and C shares. Um, A shares would be uh, voting shares, and then B or C shares would be non-voting. Uh, you can create one of those levels of shares that may have decision-making power to sell, you know, big decisions, transformative decisions like selling the company, um, things along those lines. Uh, but yeah, you you centralize sort of day-to-day operations into your A shares um, so that they can run the company on an active basis. And then let's say you just have A and B. The B shares would be people that would still be entitled to profits and still be entitled to, to money out of the company, um, but would not be able, would not have input on the day-to-day operations. Got it. So from what I've experienced and from what I'm hearing from you too, one of the key crucial points of this is getting a baseline valuation or baseline dollar amount that, you know, you got to start with a certain dollar amount in the pie, right? And then you're starting to divvy it up and then you can start benchmarking going forward or explain kind of how you start to measure those things. What we do is, um, we do want evaluation for sure because you, you need to put value on the shares as you start breaking them up. When mom and dad own it, 
um, you've just got one set of shares and there might be a hundred of them and they might be worth X amount each based on the value of the company. When you start breaking up shares and frankly, part of succession planning is gifting, you know, pushing shares and pushing money to that next generation. You got to have valuation. You got to have a valuation done so you know how much those shares are worth. Um, so yes, we do go through valuation and then we kind of figure out what's, how many shares we're going to start giving away and over what time period we're going to give those shares to the kids. Is it over a 20 year period? Is it going to be fast and furious? And frankly, is there some sale component to the parents? Are they, are they going to be giving some shares and are they going to be selling some either back to the company or to the kids for their own retirement? And I think, you know, as you kind of lay this out, you've alluded to it a couple of times, a couple of different times where it can be as fast or as long as the parents are comfortable with. And from, have you, do you have any experience with, um, let's say from I'll go back to my own situation where my sister, my brother were, you know, my sister was in the business for a little while and my brother wasn't where let's say we go through a situation like that where all of a sudden my sister and brother-in-law want to go off and do something else. And they're sick of having the risk of part of their family estate on my shoulders. What is the way that they can get out of that situation? Well, those are very important decisions that we kind of let the parents make as they're developing this plan. When we put the shareholder agreement together, it's really the parents that drive a lot of that with the input of the kids. Um, but the top concern is the preservation of the company. We know that people might want to leave the company. We know that people may want or need to get bought out. But you can't. You need to have language in a shareholder agreement uh, or a member agreement that allows the company to dictate the terms of a buyout like that. Um, you, you just can't afford to have someone demand, well, I want all my money and I want it over the next year. The company has to be able to afford a buyout on, on, the cash, on a cash flow basis. Um, so we, we really set that up again at the beginning as we're transitioning the company uh, away from the parents and into the kids' hands. So what are the, some of the biggest challenges that you've seen when you're having these conversations? The biggest one, and I don't think it's not even close, is the conversation about the transition of decision-making power. Um, mom and dad have started this business. One of them is probably running it. Maybe they both are, and there's a power structure there. There's a power dynamic there of who makes decisions. The first thing that has to happen is I, I want to hear or talk to those parents about their comfort level with getting themselves out from a running the company standpoint? Are they comfortable turning over this decision-making power and how fast? There may be a learning period for some of the kids um, where the parents are still on the board, uh, but out of the day-to-day. -day, we have to have really frank conversations to develop our time frame based on how comfortable the parents are kind of letting go, releasing, releasing power and releasing control to the kids. Uh, and then we stage it out based on that. Yeah, I, I, communication, 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 right? <laughs> and it, the, it is. I mean, if you can't, if you, it, the clients that are difficult to work with are the ones that have had no conversations with the kids and are seem unwilling or, or maybe there's a passive aggressive element to it where people just aren't willing to talk, to have frank conversations with kids 
um, those are very, very hard plans to implement because someone's got to talk to that next generation. So when you're, let's, let's go to an example where you've got a business active child that is pretty much the successor and you've got the parents and from my experience personally and with my clients is you got that person is usually a chip off the old block entrepreneur that likes autonomy. They've got their own vision and you got the parents who are, are trying to, I mean, it's their identity in their business. So you've got this struggle between releasing of an identity and transitioning to a second stage of life. And then you've got the other, you know, individual who's trying to come up and be their own person. How do you bridge that gap with some of these, you know, agreements or timeframes? Or what is some of the way, because a well, perfect example is the, the father wants to come in and just walk the halls, you know, once a week because he's got nothing else to do, but he, and he loves all of his employees, but then the kid feels like he's being smothered and is not let, a, let alone. How, how can you set that up for success so that way it happens, but you're not dealing with a lot of, like you said, the passive aggressive or hidden issues? Yeah. It, again, I hate to be a broken record. It's the communication, right? The, the parents, it, what you, this, what you, the anecdote you used about walking the halls is a very common one, right? Uh, the parents have poured their blood, sweat, and tears into this company. And everybody knows them. You know, everybody comes up and says hi and introduces their family at the company picnic, right, to the parents. And they are they're the face of the company, and the company is their identity, the parents' identity. Um, there has to be communication to the people in the company about what's happening. Now, it's a little further down the road, and it's probably not as detailed. But defining roles of, you know, mom and dad, yeah, we are going to be here. We still want a place to go during the day. But for the most part, you're going to, you know, Mike Jr. from this point on regarding these decisions. Uh, and he'll talk to us, but we'll still be around. We just, we, we need you to be asking Mike Jr. the questions on the day-to-day -day basis instead of us. Again, you know, we're back to communication, back to a messaging this thing. So if you're the parents then and you're having the communication, what are the ways that you track the, the success of the decisions of the kids that are now taking it over? We track it through the kids, right? When we get into a relationship like this, our, our initial client is the parents and the company less so, you know, we're really talking to the parents as individuals and we're talking about the company. Eventually over time, the, the company becomes the client. And now we're, we're in the position where we kind of want to know what the dynamic is. Um, and oftentimes over a period of years, over the transition, we'll know from the person who is in charge, the, the kid who is in charge or the kids that are in charge running the company, sort of what issues they're running into um, with, you know, let's just say dad walking the halls, but also making decisions without the kids involved. And then we, we try to address that. We try to address that on both sides um, because it, it needs to be. The, the parents want to, they, they want, they say they want to move on, but that's not as, always as easy to actually do as it is to say. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that, especially when their family and friends and everybody, their community is their employees and their company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the, some of the successful things that I've seen people do in the transition is to have some pretty key benchmarks that allow the parents to know that they're financially okay and you know is it things that in those agreements that you're putting into you know whether it's 
a certain level of EBITDA or if it's certain profit margins? Are you tying a lot of the contracts to that so that way the parents can actually judge on a practical basis, you know, where they're not getting the emotions involved? Yeah, when we do a, a buyout of the parents specifically, you know, when we talk about the company or the kids buying the parents out, part of that buyout or redemption is going to include continued um, financials coming to the parents. They need that. Uh, even if you're an outside buyer, right? If, if you or I were to buy a company, Ryan, and we were to finance part of it uh, through the seller, we're going to want to see as the seller, we're going to want to make sure our investment is still secure and we're going to ask for financials on a regular basis. The, the parents are going to do the same thing here, uh, especially if they're continuing to be paid out. Uh, they want to make sure that nothing is sliding that they don't know about because it, it part of their it's part of their retirement. They don't want to see the company go down. They want to see it continue to be successful, but it's also part of their retirement plan that they get paid. So I know we were going to maybe save that topic for another episode, but mm -hmm. I think it's such a such a top level conversation or such a top of the mind topic for everybody because you know I didn't have any money when I was looking at buying my dad out, and a lot of these kids don't have a big huge nest egg, and so. You know, when we're talking about the big emotional picture, a lot of people understand that communication is, and it's very difficult. But you know, when they're when the parents and the kids are looking at actually articulating a deal or architecting a deal, what you know, they, the biggest thing is I don't have enough money, or my kids don't have enough money. Can you explain some of the ways that you help the process of you know you had mentioned seller financing or going to a bank? What are some of the common ways that you see that the transition actually happens from a monetary standpoint? Yeah, and like you said, we'll we'll cover this in more depth. I think on a, on another conversation, um, but parents don't necessarily understand how their kid is going to buy them out either. I, I met with a client recently who was, you know, I think it was about a, it was probably a three or four million dollar sale to the son, and they said, well, we we really want to get out fast. We have faith in the son, but we also want to make sure we get paid. Um, so, and they were just thinking down the line of financing it themselves, right? Where the son did come up with some down payment and there was some going to be some gifting involved so the parents could do their, their estate tax planning, but then also get a payment plan, get a promissory note from the kid to the parents that the kid or the company was going to pay X amount per month for X number of months. And they buy it out just like you buy a car, just like you finance a car. Um, but then when we started talking about this was a... This is a company that's been around a long time, has good financials, their bank loves them. And they said, well, why don't you just tell your son to go get his own loan and you can get paid on all at one time? Oh, we can do that? Well, yeah, you've, you've got an established company that has financial documentation. Uh, banks would be, they'd be climbing all over themselves to finance your buyout and you get all your money up front or most of it up front and eliminate all of your risk. And then you really can retire with a clear, with a clear head. Because then, the, then all of the responsibilities on the son to pay that note back to the bank instead of the parents carrying it over a certain period of time. That's right. It takes all the risk out for the parents to do to let the, that next generation get get their own financing. I mean, it doesn't always work, but it, it is an option, and most parents haven't thought about that. Well, I think you make a good point too. Because I mean, 
when we were first going through it, I mean, we had no idea. I'm like, I just, I was like, well, man, I make, you know, dirt for money. How the hell am I going to buy this huge company? <laughs> and you know, the, the, the cool way to look at it in my mind, cause everybody is so familiar with the real estate market where, you know, the bank looks at your salary and then you're able to buy a certain level or certain size house based on your salary. And then in the business world, you've got the revenue, which is a quote unquote, your salary and the EBITDA, which is the cash flow. So you're able to finance the company based on the company's revenue. So, you know, whether it's an internal person or a, or a, a family member, there's definitely ways to do that. And what are some of the, you know, I think control and financing is some of the, you know, like you, like we were saying originally, it's the, the scale that balances back and forth. What are some of the most successful stories that you've heard where you kind of combines both of those two in terms of communication and duration? And what are some of the key qualities? Yeah, and, and this, again, gets back to the documentation, documenting the transition, creating those different um, share classes, and then clearly defining, having a family meeting and laying out exactly what's happening and the why. Most of the time, the kids aren't surprised with what the transition plan is. Nobody, I have never seen someone, a kid say, oh, wait, I thought I was going to be the president. Oh, you mean you, the one who has not worked there in 15 years and has a job somewhere else and lives on the other side of the country, you thought you were going to be the president? That, that doesn't happen. There's usually some understanding as to how that transition will work. But the technical side of making sure kids that aren't working there still feel involved um, are still still feel like they have some say as to what happens to the company. Walking through that is very is really really important so that every under, everyone understands their role. As you create these different shares or different different levels of ownership, to uh, to make them understand why you're doing it this way. So. One of the, you know, you had mentioned making sure everybody feels involved. What are the ways that you guys go about doing that? Is it a simple email? Is it family board meetings? What are some of the ways that they can structure that? Yeah, it, it that one is a very individual to individual families. It depends on how the communication works. Ideally, you're going to have a meeting, uh, whether that be with me or other advisors there, um, it, it, it's going to depend on the dynamics, but ideally you're having a meeting so that people can ask questions. Uh, ones that in situations that are a little trickier is when there's not that sort of unity among the family or where there have been some communication breakdowns um, and we draft up the shareholder or ownership agreement and we send it out for everyone to look at. Um, it still works. We still answer questions. We make it clear that we represent only the parents or only the company when we give advice and we ask everybody, if everybody to go get their own attorney to take a look on their behalf. It just, it lightens the process. But I, I mean, I'd say half the cases that we work on, that's what we're doing is we're emailing out proposed shareholder agreements uh, for people to read and then ask questions about it. Uh, but the better path is to have a meeting and just walk, spend a half day um, retreat style and go through it. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you're the kids, I mean, your biggest concern is, Okay, so we've got this family estate that I will get either a chunk of cash or I'm going to have a vested interest in my future sibling who's going to be running it. And how am I going to be able to track and measure that going forward? Right, right. Yeah, because people are, even if they say, well, I'm not really interested in being part of the company, 
like you had mentioned earlier, the company is probably the bulk of the assets owned by the parents. So each of the kids is very interested in making sure that they kind of get their fair share, uh, whether it be, it may not be as much while the company is still operating and the parents are still around, but they are interested in making sure that they get their equal share if something happens to mom and dad, an equal share of the value of the company. And that's what mom and dad are usually looking for. They're just because they have someone in line to take over running the company. That doesn't mean they don't want their estate divided into four equal shares among four kids when they're gone. Um, so they, you've got to work and reassure kids that just because this person is going to run the company doesn't mean they're also going to end up taking three quarters of mom and dad's money when they're gone by just keeping the whole company. So it, along those lines, can you explain, because uh, there's some different kind of contracts that you can use, buy-sell agreements or uh, various other contracts where, let's say, active child A starts running the company and then everybody's you know been doing this these meetings for a couple years now and you know I just don't want to have the risk on the table anymore can I make him buy my shares and then vice versa where if you know the active child A doesn't want all these other partners in what are the ways that you can trigger that to actually take place yeah, we're going to draft that real tightly as to how buyouts occur. Um, it, you know, the size of the company does matter. Where if you own a two million dollar company, it's unlikely that one of the kids could find an outside buyer for their shares. Um, whereas if you're talking a fifty million dollar company, you know what? Twenty five percent of the shares could be worth something to someone on the outside. But again, you. You dictate, uh, you, you talk about notice periods, I want to be bought out, you, you give votes to people. It really has to be a very democratic process uh, and not controlled by just one person. But it has to be, you know, I'll echo what I said a little bit earlier, whatever happens has to be fair to the company first. You can't have, you can't put the company in jeopardy because someone wants to be bought out because they've made decisions in their own life that lead to them needing money right away. Um, mm -hmm. The company has to be the one, the thing that you protect, and that's what you do through these documents. Got it, I think that's a, that's a perfect way to put it because you can't just have someone, I mean, and you got families, everybody's got their own personal stuff that they got going on and they can't just dictate, it's not a bank where you can just get a check because it'll put undue stress on the company and the cash flow. Right, and it, it kind of goes back, go back to our cabin analogy, right? The one person who doesn't want to contribute or doesn't want to be part of the cabin or can't afford it, well, it does. That doesn't necessarily mean that they get bought out because not every, not everybody might be in a position to do that. Um, so the, there, there's got to be rules with the in the company. There's got to be rules in the dot the transition documents that dictate when people can get bought out and under what circumstances and how how that's done over time. I love it. So. Because of the, you know, I'll end on a couple final notes. One is that the succession or the, the success rates of uh, multi-generational families is very low. And I, I don't know if everybody's familiar with the stats, but it's like 70% 70, 70 that failed a first transition of the first generation. And then it's, I think, like 12 the second and then 3% the third. So with those crazy odds, what are some of the, you know, one to three things that you would suggest from our listeners that are going through the, this family dynamic. First one, it's got to be honesty. It, it's got to be 
a discussion among the current owners as to who is who is capable and who is willing to participate in this company going forward and at what level. If you can't have an honest discussion about this, you know, this child of yours who you love dearly but causes trouble wherever they go or just is not going to work very hard, if you can't have an honest discussion about that and make a decision that that person will not be part of you know, a management team going forward, you're setting that, ge- that next generation up for trouble. Um, like, like with the cabin, the parents are the great regulator. When they're gone, all hell can break loose among siblings who really only got along when mom and dad were watching. Um, so being honest about who's going to be doing what or what you envision for who's going to be doing what is a big deal. The other thing you've got to decide that the, the parents need to decide early is why, the, why they're transitioning the company. Um, and, and really, there's two paths there. One is, are they, tra- are they transitioning it and do they need money for retirement? It, or are they just trying to transition it? They've got enough money. Yes, they want to get some, but they're not reliant on that money for their retirement. Those are two very different discussions, two different paths um, in the discussion because you add a buyout, a real important buyout element um, and elimination of risk element if they need money for retirement. So I would say those two are the, are the bi- two biggest things that the parents need to be thinking about. What do they need out of the transition? And what is their honest assessment as to who should be doing what in the company on a go-forward basis? And then communicate, communicate, communicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the undercurrent across everything. It gets to sound cliche, but man, the more you talk, the more people have these conversations, the better it's going to be. The more every time there's a surprise, you can be assured something is going to go wrong and someone's going to be offended. Call the BS flag before it happens. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If someone finds out they're not going to be the president of the company in an email from a lawyer, well, that's just a bad idea. That is just setting <laughs> things up for failure. They yeah. probably should know that before the shareholder agreement arrives from a lawyer. Have the hard conversations because <laughs> it's just not worth uh, the BS that you're going to have to go through. <laughs> yeah, and you, you, you talked about the statistics of you know second generation being successful, third generation being even less successful. You hate to say it, but that, that success of each pass down is reliant on the generation passing it down. In, the, in a pro, an appropriate way. Yes, sometimes the kids come in and they, they wreck the place, but what I see more is that the parents, uh, the people giving the company or moving the company down to the next generation have not done a good job of setting it up to succeed, not setting expectations with the kids, not mentoring them along as far as ownership, and not setting ground rules for all the kids to play well together. I love it. So John, how can our listeners get a hold of you today? Uh, they can contact me at um, my direct number, 952-358-7406, or you can contact me through our website at seilerschindel.com, S-E-I-L-E-R-S-C-H-I-N-D-E-L.com. Thanks very much for being on the show, John. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan.